everyone. Hey there, guys. Welcome to I Don't, I don't know, know Her, the podcast where we talk about women you've probably never heard of, but, but you, you should, should have. have. And, and now you will. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we were talking a little bit about what to talk about with you this morning. So one thing I wanted to discuss was I, I've talked a, a lot lately about my health issues on the show. And I just wanted to say that we now have a diagnosis. Yay. And it's actually um, been like two months almost, like a month and a half, I guess, since the first uh, diagnosis, which is that I have something called axial spondyloarthritis. Yeesh, that's a mouthful. It is. <laughs> what it basically means is I have a specific kind of inflammatory, chronic inflammatory, similar to an autoimmune disease has autoimmune markers in it where it attacks specifically my hips and lower spine. And I found out that apparently it goes years and years and years undiagnosed in women. Yeah. Amanda gave me a statistic. What was that again? 66%. 66% of women go undiagnosed. Go undiagnosed. Yeah. Because, and in fact, even still, if you like look up spondylitis or spondyloarthritis or ankylosing spondylitis, they're mm-hmm. all under the same umbrella. If you look them up even now, lots of current medical places still say that it occurs more, more often in men than in women, which is not actually true. Mm. It's that women don't get diagnosed. Wow. And so I'm assuming that that happens in the doctor's office where you're explaining your your issues and what you're feeling and oh it's this oh it's this oh it's this without like really taking the time to really dig deep I mean she's she's had to be forceful with Mm -hmm. the digging that she's done and I feel like most women might not do that or they might feel lost or discouraged and just give up and I think women also have a tendency to grin down and bear it yeah you know it's like you like the pain that I have is at this point unbearable, but I've been having pain in my lower back, in my ribs, my spine for eight years mm. at least. Like I remember telling a doctor about it once that I had pain in my ribs and um, they said it was a slipped rib. And I was like, yeah, but it's constant. It's not like, oh, I stretched the wrong way or I, was running and I did a twist or something like Mm -hmm. it's constant. Like I wake up every day and my ribs hurt. And this rheumatologist was like, Oh yeah, that's definitely this. But she is also a woman, Mm -hmm. a woman of color. (laughs) And so I think there was, you know, I just happened to luck out when I got a rheumatologist who was a woman Mm -hmm. who didn't, you know, dismiss my pain. Yeah. And also it's very important that you mentioned women of color because a lot of women of color in the medical industry are completely ignored. Yeah. There is an actual perception that specifically black women Mm -hmm. can endure more pain than white people. Like what a fucking ridiculous notion. Come up with that. I have no idea. Yeah. So to any listeners out there, if you're hearing anything that if you've been listening and, and hearing Amanda describe her pain, maybe take a look at that. <laughs> yeah. 
And you know what's funny is that I just put it out on Facebook today. That's kind of why I'm talking about it on the show is because it, I finally made it public to the people closest to me. And it's not like it's something to hide. But I will say that it's been very confusing for me and for other people around me to like, it kind of feels almost like I have hypo, like I'm a hypochondriac because it just never seems to have an answer. It never seems to go away. Well, it's not going to. It's chronic. That's mm-hmm. the whole point is I'm going to have this probably my whole life. And it's probably always going to have pretty intense flare-ups. I'm really hopeful that the new medication that I'm on is going to help with that, but it may not. And I do feel like society handles very differently people with diseases that you can't see. Oh, for sure. Um, And I have found that whenever I've shared this kind of stuff, people start messaging me. And this morning it was my cousin. Oh, wow. Who's in the process of also trying to get diagnosed. Oh, wow. And she revealed that like her rheumatologist wants to start, start her on a biologic med, which is really, it's really hard on your body. It's basically like what you have when you have cancer, like the, it's called TNF inhibitors. And I've heard of those. Yeah, they're they're really intense medications. Mm-hmm. And she was like, I don't feel like I want to start that until I have a re- like a solid diagnosis. And she wanted to know how I got diagnosed. Mm. And it was like, that is a question that no one should have to ask. Like, how did you get them to diagnose you? How did you get them to listen and actually be like, oh, sorry. Yeah, they <laughs> were really sick. There's there's actually. So I said that the spondylitis is a whole umbrella. And underneath that umbrella, like, there are common things that happen in conjunction with what I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them is where you have pain at the insertion of your tendons into your bones. And I have had that for years and didn't know that was a thing. I just kept getting referred to sports medicine doctors and physical therapists for tendonitis. Mm-hmm. Well, it's really kind of weird to just constantly have tendonitis. Yeah. <laughs> When you're doing all of the exercises and you're taking pain relievers and anti-inflammatories, like it should eventually sort of calm down and mine doesn't. Mm -hmm. And um, also another comorbidity is what it's called with mine is that I have an inflammatory bowel problem. So I'm constantly like having digestive issues. Mm -hmm. So another one of those underneath that can be, it doesn't have to be, is a psoriatic arthritis so it's like you get psoriasis with your arthritis, oh. which psoriasis is when you get those like dry skin patches mm-hmm. and stuff. And that's what they think my cousin has potentially. And like, she's like, I have a single tiny little spot behind my knee or on her leg or something. Yeah. And she's like, so I don't, I'm not convinced that it's that. Yeah. And I feel like you know your body. Mm-hmm. And yeah. also I feel like one little tiny spot behind the knee, you're fishing. Yes. You're fishing for something. Oh, it's this. And then on your way. And, you know, if you're not feeling comfortable with the diagnosis you've received, it is probably a good idea to get a second opinion. Mm -hmm. But I will say that getting a second opinion is so fucking hard. Mm -hmm. Like in this city, there aren't very many rheumatologists to begin with. I am part of an HMO plan, which means I can only go to the ones that are Kaiser. Mm -hmm. And there is... Guess how many? You told me. One. There's one. One. Thank God she's good. <laughs> because if I didn't if I didn't like what she had to say or if I needed I felt like I needed a second opinion, 
I have to pay for that out of pocket. Mm -hmm. And most people in this country cannot pay for that. No. So it puts you at a disadvantage if you're somebody who's having a chronic illness, chronic pain, whatever, and you don't have good insurance, or if your insurance is an HMO, good luck. Yeesh. Yeah, so basically vote for people who are going to improve access to healthcare. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> because this is ridiculous. Yeah. And I'm just one person, and I do have a good job that has good medical insurance. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine I like what it would be like to live with what I've been living with and not have any options. Yeah, being shit out of luck kind of thing. And that's yeah. why people fund their healthcare through GoFundMes, mm -hmm. which I contribute which, to now. Yeah, which I do too. <laughs> So who do you have today? A little curious. Oh, oh, um, are we ready? I think so. Okay. Well, I am going to talk about Laura Keene. I don't know her. No, I didn't think so. <laughs> Your face, you look so satisfied. <laughs> I didn't think you did. Laura Keene was a British stage actress and the first powerful female theater manager in United States history. Okay. Yeah. You ready? Yeah. Okay. Laura Keene was born Mary Frances Moss in Winchester, England on July 20th, 1826. So, you know, mid 19th century. Yeah. Her parents were Tomas and Janet Moss or Jane Moss. And Laura was their fourth and youngest child. Mm. Not much is known about Mary's early life, but it is believed that her father was at the time considered a gentleman, which would mean that as a young girl, she had access to like a middle class, upper middle class life mm -hmm. where she could be well educated. Like a little bit more above the tier. Kind yes. Of thing. Yeah. And it would like girls, young women did not have access to education unless they came from a good family. Mm. Quote unquote good. Uh, as a young lady, she was employed in an art gallery. So there's another example of her access to things. I can't imagine art galleries, you know, taking in a peasant girl from the streets. No. <laughs> Um, sometime around age 18, she met a man named Henry Wellington Taylor, who is sometimes called John by sources, so I don't, but I'm pretty sure his name is Henry. Mm -hmm. He was 27 and reportedly was a well-connected dude. Like, And how old is she at this time? 18. Okay. It's not the worst. It's not the worst. It's not the worst we've seen, honestly. No. <laughs> Mary and Henry get married, and within a year, she gave birth to their first daughter, who she named Emma. After being discharged from the army, Mary's husband, Henry, decided to open up his own tavern. Mm. And I just have to say, I've never seen a story turn out well when people own a bar. <laughs> not in history, not like in the history. things we read, and not in my real life. Like, I, I now have known two families who've tried to own a tavern, and it has destroyed them. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't go well for them. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Mary gave birth to another daughter, Clara Marie Stella, in 1849. And about a year later, shortly after Clara is born, Mary's husband, Henry, is arrested. Arrested? Whatever he's accused of doing must have been super serious because they actually send him on a prison ship from England to Australia. <gasps> that means it was bad. It was real bad. He basically got exiled. Yeah. In 1850. That's really bad. It's real bad. Yeah. Uh, and it, it nothing said what, what he was accused of doing, but oh. they fucking exiled him from the whole country of England. So <laughs> hmm. they sent him to another continent. <laughs> so uh, 
Mary was left alone to care for her two small children at a time when women weren't afforded very many opportunities. So she turned to her mother and her aunt for help. Her mother agreed to take in both of Mary's daughters and ended up becoming their primary and eventually only caregiver. Okay. So thank God for her mom. Mm -hmm. Mary's aunt was a woman named Elizabeth Yates, who was well known at the time as a prominent British actress. And she offered Mary a position working as an apprentice in a theater company. Hmm. But in English society at the time, this is important to know, actresses were seen as super low class. Like it was like not something good girls did. Mm -hmm. And even considered to be closely related to sex work. Like people people would basically be like, oh, you're an actress. That means you're a whore. Mm -hmm. Which is one, all of that is wrong. No. Yeah. <laughs> Two, um, hey, get your judgy pants off. Yeah. <laughs> it's entertainment. Come on. <laughs> it's and, acting. And also, like, what, I mean, we've done the soapbox about how sex work is not True. lowly work to begin with, but we don't rule the world yet. <laughs> so it was unacceptable at the time for a woman with children and no husband Ooh. to work in a theater. I didn't think about that. Yes. <laughs> so it was really unacceptable. So Mary's aunt suggested that Mary reinvent herself. So she did. From then on, Mary Moss was known as Laura Keene. Okay. Laura took well to the stage with successful roles in famous and popular plays at the time. In 1851, she starred as Pauline in a play called The Lady of Lions in London. Mm. So she's like really on her way already. She was then invited to perform with the Royal Olympic Theater and spent several months at the Royal Lyceum Theater, where she worked with a woman named Madame Vestris, and she was a very well-respected and successful actress and theater manager at the time. So she had a good, like, mentor. Yeah. Within a year of starting her theater career, Laura was invited by James William Wallach, an American actor and theater manager, to move to New York City and star as the lead actress in shows at his theater. Wow. She must have been a natural talent. Yeah, I was going to say that's fairly quick. Yeah, a yeah. year. Can you imagine all of those Hollywood actors and actresses right now who are like, fuck her. <laughs> I've been doing this One shit year. for a dozen years. <laughs> so Laura left her two young daughters in the care of her mother and left for New York. She made her debut in America on September 20th, 1852, where she was described by the New York Mirror as having a, quote, natural and unstagey style admirable articulation, and a winning voice. Mm. Laura set her sights higher than just being an actress, though. She wanted to have her own theater. So with less than a year in America under her belt, Laura left Wallach's Theater and moved to Baltimore, where she leased the Charles Street Theater. Laura became the manager, director, and star performer at the Charles Street Theater. Her first production was on Christmas Eve in 1853. And again, remember, she started her very first play was in 1851 yeah so it's been two years in the business and she's already running her own theater Sheesh. and she became um again she's the manager director and star mm. she wasn't gonna let somebody else does she have, <laughs> have money like did she sell the tavern or something maybe i think the tavern put put them under really oh okay and i i think i did read somewhere that her aunt gave her some money okay so, but I think by the point that she's opening the Charles Street Theater, that she had saved up her money from acting. Oh, okay. So, incidentally, the same day, so on Christmas Eve of 1853, this same day, 
a woman named Catherine Sinclair opened a play as a manager in San Francisco, making them both the first women theater managers in the United States. Whoa, that's pretty cool. I know, the same day? Yeah, on the same day. But Laura wouldn't last long in Baltimore. There was a rival male theater owner, and actually a couple of them, who were really threatened by her ingenuity and a success, and they ended up pushing her out after producing 34 plays. They basically, like, took it out from underneath her. That's bullshit. It, it really was. So Laura headed west to try to strike it rich during the California gold rush. And I assumed when they said that in the stuff that, like, oh, it's because she was going to try to get some gold. But I realized after reading what was really going on that she was thinking, oh, everybody's going to have all of this expendable wealth. I might as well start a theater. Oh. And they can come spend their money at my theater. Not that they're, like, super poor and they're digging for gold. <laughs> Shit. So she assumed with all of the money, people would attend a theater, right? So she takes the railroad from Baltimore to California, but it wasn't yet completed. (laughs) And so the journey was like really hard on her. Like they had, they had really bad, a bad time getting there, but she thought it was worth it when she got there. Laura was hired by none other than Catherine Sinclair. Hey. Yeah. Which I thought was really cool, this little, like, tie-in between each other. Yeah. So she cast Laura opposite a man named Edwin Booth, who was then a famous actor from a prominent show business family. Edwin and his brothers, two brothers, I believe, were both actors as well. Okay. Laura and Edwin began having an affair. Ooh, scandal. I know. (laughs) And the two decided to head to Australia together, where there was another gold rush happening. Maybe she runs into her ex. <laughs> We're going to get there. <gasps> oh, my God. <laughs> so some people believe that Laura went to Australia specifically to find her husband, Henry, and try to get in a divorce from him. Oh. There were reports that she was unsuccessful in her quest, but other reports said that she did find him and that he refused to grant her a divorce. Huh. So I don't know what's really real on that one, but... It's juicy. Interesting. <laughs> so while they were in Australia, things also soured between Laura and Edwin, who reportedly had an issue with alcohol. Mm. And his shitty behavior ended their relationship <laughs> and the tour that they were on. So the two returned to California where Laura took on managing the American theater. And she was successful enough to bring home $30,000 a year. That's amazing. $30,000 that a year in the 1850s? That's a, You're a millionaire. Right? Yeah. I was like, girl, like, my wife's never even made that much money in a year. (laughs) And it is 2019. So Laura remained in California for a few years until a law was passed that I'd never heard of that banned any entertainment on the Sabbath. What? Yeah. So you couldn't have a theater on Sunday. Okay. So declining audience numbers gave Laura a a good reason to go back to New York. So back in New York, Laura leased the Metropolitan Theater and renovated it, completely renewed this place. And she reopened it as Laura Keene's Varieties. And things were going really well for her until a man named William Burton purchased the theater out from under her and kicked her company out. How does that happen? How can you purchase something from underneath someone if they own it? Well, she didn't. She was leasing it. She was leasing it. Okay. So she was renting this theater renovate it with her own money, started her own company, and this guy's just like, I'm going to buy the theater. Uh, and it was a competitor. So once again, these men were like threatened by her, so they weren't put her out of business. 
But never one to stay down, Laura found her own investors that were willing to take a gamble on her. And she even lined up an architect who specialized in theaters. And finally, she built a theater of her own, no more late leasing. And she named it Laura Keene's Theater. Good. (laughs) It's mine, motherfuckers. Laura's theater opened up in November of 1856 when she was just 30 years old. Oh my gosh, she's still so young. I know. So young. Her theater was considered a monumental success. Around this time, she met a wealthy man named John Lutz, and he became involved in her theater, helping to manage it financially. And the two eventually marry in 1860. Hmm. He kind of becomes her manager in some ways. For seven solid years, Laura produced comedies and huge productions, playing the lead female role in all of them, which I love. (laughs) I love that she's like, I'm not just going to own it, but I'm going to be the star. I'm going to own all of it. (laughs) And yeah, she also had a hand in the set design and construction, costuming, writing, and advertising. Yeah, she's a great multitasker. Yeah, she did it all. And Laura's theater was so successful that she was able to draw some of the most famous intelligent actors of the day, like Joseph Jefferson, Dion Bukakow, and John T. Raymond, who were all very, very famous Mm -hmm. at the time. And Laura also changed the way theater ran for the rest of time. Her show called The Elves ran for 50 performances, which was a record at the time. Hmm. There had never been a show last that long. Other shows she put on ran for six weeks. Some ran for more than 200 performances. Whoa. And she proved to be a powerhouse in American theater. But her biggest show of all time was yet to come. A man named Tom Taylor had written a play called Our American Cousin that Laura saw a lot of potential in. So she took the play and then she rewrote it. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Um, Later on, people would call that plagiarism. Yeah. Well, we're just going to breeze past that for a minute. Rewrote it. <laughs> so she revised and rewrote it and debuted this huge production of it in 1858. And this play became her most successful play of all time. It ran for five months straight. Wow. This was the longest run of a single play in New York history at the time. And New York was the center, the theater capital of the country. Yeah. And Laura saw yet another opportunity. People were coming from all over New England to come see her her production of Our American Cousin. And mm-hmm. she thought, instead of them coming to me, why don't I bring it to them? Traveling acting team. And so she pioneered the as seen in New York idea that continues today. Like, you know how we have like the traveling Broadway shows that come to Spokane? Yeah. She originated that idea. What? So we without her, I mean, obviously somebody was going to kind of come up with it eventually, but she's the one who popularized it. Wow. So the play ended up landing at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C., and Laura continued to play the female lead on the tour, and she decided to end her run on April 14, 1865. So I'm going to play a clip for you that explains a little about the play and the final performance of it, which we'll get into in a minute. Okay. Uh, So we know our American cousin because of her. She brought the show here, um, and she owned the rights to the American production. Uh, She tweaked it a little bit. Uh, Initially, it had made fun of American backwardness. Um, But by casting uh, an actor who was very good, E.A. Southern, in what had been a minor role, Lord Dundreary of a a British fop, and then kind of letting him go to town, uh, he made the part much bigger and the play changed into a mockery of British aristocracy, which, of course, American audiences love. 
lived. And the play was extremely successful. It ran for a very long time. And the night of April 14th was supposedly her 1,000th performance in the role of Florence Trenchard, the ingenue. Um, and it was supposedly her last. She was outgrowing the role in age and maybe shouldn't have been doing it anymore, and the play was a little bit past its prime. But it definitely was the last night of the show's run at Ford's Theater. And as such, um, it was her benefit performance, and she would get a cut of the profits from that night. It's really interesting. It gets better. Okay. Some people who are listening to this have already picked up on what's going on. Mm. I'm sure of it. Have you? No. Okay. (laughs) Just five days before this last performance, Robert E. Lee, the commander (gasps) of the Confederate forces, had surrendered to Grant and the nation was very excited. Mm -hmm. I think you figured something out. Maybe. Okay. President Abraham Lincoln decided to celebrate... Um, by t- taking in the last showing of Our American Cousin, starring Laura Keene at Ford's Theater in D.C. General Grant was also supposed to be in attendance. He was the commander, of course, of our of the Union forces. Mm-hmm. And at the last minute, he changed his plans and decided not to go to the play. By 7.30 that night, the house was packed. People had jammed in to see Laura's last performance and perhaps sneak a glimpse of the commander-in-chief in the box. <laughs> The play began at 8 p.m., but President Lincoln and his entourage were late, not arriving until about 8.30 p.m. Laura stopped the play when he arrived, and the orchestra conducted um, Hail to the Chief. The audience cheered for Lincoln, and he came to the front of the box and waved to the crowd, and then he took his seat. And the play continued with renewed energy. The I read this really great, like, play-by-play, minute-by-minute description of the night, and, like, the crowd was just going crazy they loved everything about this night yeah and of course it had been publicized that president lincoln was going to come to this showing so they had completely sold out Mm. and so this was like it was her last performance as you heard on the thing she was her benefit performance yeah all of the money would go to her so she was stoked yeah (laughs) that the the president was coming to her last performance yeah and she's probably going to end on a high note that's right So, during the second scene of the third act, Laura Keene was standing in the left wing awaiting her cue. President Lincoln adjusted a portion of the drapery around him and leaned on one hand. At this moment, John Wilkes Booth stood silently in the shadows of the state box, just feet behind the president. Booth raised a gun and shot Lincoln in the back of the head. One of the president's companions, a man named Major Rathbone, jumped up and ran toward Booth, but he held a dagger in his other hand, which he sliced across Rathbone's arm. I didn't know he had a dagger and a gun. I didn't either. John Wilkes Booth leapt from the box and ran Mm -hmm. across the stage right past Laura Keene. Within seconds, he'd run through the backstage door and was gone into the night. Laura recognized the man. He was none other than her former partner, Edwin Booth's brother. Oh, shit! (laughs) I was like, oh, it's clicking! In the meantime, the theater was obviously in an uproar. Laura was trying to calm the audience down and asked for someone to bring the president some water. She's quoted as saying from the stage, For God's sake, have the presence of mind and keep your places and all will be well. Witnesses from the night say that her pleas went unheeded. People were shouting and screaming and running. The crowd was gathered together under the box wanting to know what happened to the president. Laura knew a back way to get to the box from behind the stage and quickly made her way to the president. Mary Todd Lincoln, the president's wife, was hysterical when she got up there, and Mary was incapable at the time of comforting her dying husband. 
So Laura dropped to her knees and held the president's head in her lap, bathing it with water. She would later look down upon her dress and see that it was stained with the president's blood. Eventually, Lincoln was carried across the street to a rooming house where he lay in a coma for nine hours before he died at 7.22 a.m. on April 15, 1865. This event was obviously traumatic for Laura, Mm -hmm. and she stepped away from the theater for a while. Laura's health was also declining, even though she was only in her early 30s or in her late 30s. She continued to manage and star in her touring company for a few more years and then briefly went back to theater management in 1869. Um, And for just a year in there, she managed the Chestnut Street Theater in Philadelphia But after the president's assassination and her part in it, it had really affected her. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people forgot that she, who she was prior to that night. And even still, when you read about her, that's the number one thing that comes up. Yeah. Even though she'd had this really long and important career prior to this night. So I, I wanted to tell that story because I think it's really fascinating and cool. But I also wanted to just say... That was a night in her very long and storied career. Mm -hmm. So she's kind of stepped back from the theater. Her health is declining. She's spent one year as a manager and then was like, I really can't do this. And then her husband, John Lutz, died that year as well in 1869. And this caused an immense financial burden for her. Between that and her tuberculosis diagnosis, she was not doing well. Mm. She continued to act occasionally and gave public lectures for a few years before she died on November 4th, 1873 in Montclair, New Jersey. Laura was just 47 years old. That's really young. She was buried in the Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, New York. Laura Keene made an immense impact on American theater. She became one of the most successful and dynamic theater managers in history and was one of the first managers to support and encourage American playwrights. She also established the matinee and the idea of a long-running show. While she's often remembered solely for the part she played in the night of Lincoln's assassination, it's important to note that she was a history maker in her own right. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to put in something that I read in two places, but I wasn't able to really figure out whether or not it was true. Okay. Because she knew Edwin Booth and therefore also knew John Wilkes Booth, at first... The police believed that she was in on this assassination, that she had helped plan it and had really? made it available to him. So she was actually arrested after the assassination and they interrogated her for a really long time and then determined that she didn't have anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. But I was like, I, I couldn't tell if that really happened or if that was lore, mm-hmm. but I think it probably did because it does seem suspicious, right? Yeah. It's her last, it's her show, number one. Number two, it's her last performance. Number yeah. three, she dated the brother of yeah. the guy who assassinated the president. It would stand to reason that he would that have something to do or she would have something to do with it. Yeah. And another weird coincidence or not so coincidence is that Edwin, that's the man that she had had this affair with, mm-hmm. that's John Wilkes' brother, just a month after the assassination Edwin started putting on the show Our American Cousin. Oh, no. Isn't that shady? Very. Oh, I thought that was gross. And I didn't even know. Bad form. I know. It's like, you know who he reminds me of in this particular instance? Hmm. Meghan Markle's dad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
Do you know, like, what a jerk he is? He's, like, constantly talking to reporters about everything and anything Megan has ever said to him, Mm -hmm. which lights up the British tabloids Mm -hmm. because they're assholes. (laughs) Yeah, and people are hungry for it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what he kind of reminded me of is, like, he's sort of profiting off of his brother's fame. Yeah. And And tragedy. And I thought that was nasty. So, in any case, fuck him. Yeah. Ew. (laughs) So, I... um. I got my information from this really, really cool... I got the play-by-play of the night from this really cool article that was written in March of 1966 called Laura Keene at the Lincoln Assassination. And it was written by Billy J. Harbin in Educational Theater Journal. I also used the video uh, for the audio clip was called A Sobbing of the Strong. Mm -hmm. And I used the following magazines and websites. I used South Coast Today... The Smithsonian, True West Magazine, Encyclopedia.com, JSTOR, Encyclopedia Britannica, and Wikipedia. Awesome. That was a fascinating story. She did so much. And also part of one of the biggest moments in American history. I didn't know anything about that and how that all intertwined. I didn't It was like it was unavoidable. So that long article I talked to you about Mm -hmm. by the um, Brian Harbin, that he actually like dissected whether or not she was actually in the box because mm. she told the story that she was there and that she held his head. And there were other people who were there who said she was never in there. Mm-hmm. And then other people who said, of course she was there. But in the actual testimony that was given at the trial of John Wilkes Booth, uh, no one mentioned her being in the box. So it's just, it's just hard to know. Yeah. What really went what, on? What really happened? Especially it's so long ago, and then people sensationalize and and or even try to take away from it and saying, "Oh no, she wasn't there." Mm-hmm. Yeah, but she had this dress and it and it had his blood on it, and um, the dress itself actually was put on display for the I think it was like the hundred and twenty fifth anniversary or something, and you can see the blood stains on her dress. Oh wow! They they took the pieces of it and put it on display. So there you go. (laughs) I know. I'm like, (laughs) that's kind of irrefutable. Yeah. I mean, I guess they could do DNA testing to find out if it's his blood or like she made it up or whatever. But that would take, that'd be a lot of fucking effort. And everybody knew that was the costume she was wearing that night. And obviously she wasn't going to wear it again. Yeah. She never put the play on anymore. Yeah. So how, I mean, whatever. Conspiracy Mm. theorists (laughs) like to conspiracy theorize. So. (laughs) Well, that was great. I really did enjoy that. I know it feels like a play. It does. When it gets twists and turns, yeah. (laughs) Okay. What do you have for me? Alrighty. So today I'm gonna be talking about Rigoberta Menchu Thum. That name is a lot. Yeah. (laughs) I have no idea who that is. She is a political and human rights activist for the indigenous people of Guatemala. Woo woo! I know. Uh so Rigoberta was born to a poor indigenous family in Quiche, Maya. She's of Maya. So people say Maya and they say Mayan, mm-hmm. but it's it's the same thing. So the Maya descent in Laj Shimil on January 9th in 1959. Shimil is a rural area in north central, uh, like a north central Guatemalan province. And it's located next to the El Quiche where she's from. Okay. I don't she, know anything about Guatemala. Neither do I. Okay. So like I I tried my best. 
So Rigoberta was one of nine children. She never went to school and she spoke only her indigenous language, which is Quiche. And one year after she was born, the Guatemalan Civil War broke out. So to be able to kind of show Rigoberta's efforts, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Guatemalan Civil War, just so you yeah. kind of have an idea of what it yeah, was. Yeah, I definitely need some context. <laughs> I have no no background knowledge on this. So this war was fought mainly between the government of Guatemala and various leftist rebel groups supported by ethnic Mayan indigenous people and Ladino peasants. So the struggle was amidst a longstanding issue of land distribution mm. with European descended and for and U.S. foreign companies. And one of the biggest companies that was doing this land grab in Guatemala was the United Fruit Company. And of it was course. really conflicting with the rural poor people who it was taking advantage of. Yeah, as like the story as old as time. Yes. So before the Guatemalan Civil War, there had been a Guatemalan revolution and they had had their first ever democratic election minimum wage had been established and that really put a, like a stick in the spokes for foreign interest because they didn't want to pay yeah. an established fair wage. So what year is this again? This is about, so she was born in 1959. So it was like mid 1950s. Okay. So I, for some, I was in still in the, in my head that it was mid 19th century and I was like <laughs> a minimum wage in the mid 19th century. That's incredible. <laughs> Never mind. It was the mid 20th century. <laughs> so, and it also, so them kind of, kind of forming their own, you know, democracy, it actually really terrified the U.S. Because yeah. they thought a lot of their government stylings that was happening in Guatemala, they thought it smelled of communism. They were just like, oh, they're too this, they're too socialist there. So that scares me. Let's get in there and ruin it. <laughs> so their president is overthrown. Their government is taken over and turned into a military dictatorship. By and the U.S.? So the U.S. actually staged a coup to, like, put this person into power. Of course they did. Yes. This is not the first or last time. No. Ugh. So this is the spark that lit the flame for the Guatemalan Civil War. So the revolution had happened. Mm -hmm. They were getting better. They got knocked down. And then the Civil War broke mm -hmm. out. So this Civil War actually lasted for four decades. And oh, my result, God. I know. And it would result in the genocide of over 200,000 indigenous people in Guatemala. Shit. I had no idea. No idea. Yes. This is not on my radar, and it should be. So all of Rigoberta's life, she, this Civil War started when she was one years old. She has only seen her country and her people at war. And wow. I cannot imagine that. Yeah, when that's your normal. That's your normal. That would be, I mean, that's the same thing as sort of happening in basically most of the Middle East. Yeah. Where it's constantly at war. And that's all you know. Mm-hmm. Constant fear. So as a young girl, Rigoberta helped her family uh, farm work. They would go into the northern highlands close to where her family lived. And they would also work on the Pacific coast where they would, both adults and children uh, would work in coffee plantations. Okay. Coffee was a big thing. Down yeah. There. Coffee. Mm -hmm. So her father was opposed to the military dictatorship and the blatant violations to the people's basic rights that were happening. People were suffering from poor work conditions, uh, poverty from being underpaid. They were being overworked. They were starving. And the people who are outspoken against the dictatorship, this is interesting. They use the word disappeared. Which we had on the last episode. Yeah. And I was like, oh my gosh, disappeared is a action. Yeah. Yeah. They disappeared them. They said they disappeared them. 
uh, her father, she says this about her father, which I thought was really sweet and endearing. She says, my father was a leader. He had a lot to teach. Teachings that I carry throughout my life. He was a man of faith, always believed in what was possible. Everything he proposed he set out to do, he would do. I believe that he accomplished many goals. Goals of his rural organization, goals of planting crops on our own land. The trees that I now see that are in Chimil are ones that my father planted. His footsteps are a legacy. More than anything, I remember him as a sincere man, a peasant, humble, someone who was set out to achieve what he knew he had to do. So her father, whose name is Vicente, she would travel along with him from community to community, teaching rural. Um, I don't know if you know what a campesino is. I think I do. It means kind of, so a campo is like a camp. Mm-hmm. So it's like people of the camps. So like workers, peasants, things like that. He would go and teach uh, the campesinos their rights and would encourage them to organize. That reminds me of your dad. Yes. <laughs> is that why you wanted to talk about this? Yeah, well, actually, I didn't know who she was, but I liked highlighting this part because it reminded me of my relationship with my father. Have we talked about what your dad did? I think we have on we the have. show. Will you remind yeah. our listeners just in case they've forgotten? Uh, so my dad is, uh, he was the director for HUD and rural development for Washington State. And he had, he was actually appointed by President Obama to um, basically create and develop in Washington state. He also worked for Catholic charities, which did a lot of migrant housing, farm worker housing, um, creating fair housing and Mm -hmm. also housing for the elderly who don't have anybody to take care of them. And then now he's working, um, for, Oh geez, I don't even know. He's, he's he's like the diocese, (laughs) the Catholic diocese, right? Yeah. He's like part of their legality, like to, whatever they're forming like legally within the church and within the legal law here in Washington state, it's nonpartisan. It's more about the law and what is legal. He does a lot for people. So I did find this like, yeah, it sounds a lot like Vicente. You said his name is Vicente is her father. Yeah. So he actually too, she said he was a big, like he was big on helping settle disputes within the community because mm. he was like, we already have so much against us. Let's not turn on each other. Let's not turn on each other. Rigoberta soon became involved in social reform activities through the Catholic church, which was there at the moment providing aid and relief. And she actually became pretty prominent in the women's rights movement that was happening at the time mm. she was only a teenager at this time she's like 16 17 years old she's a lot like some of the women we've talked about yeah. Dolores Huerta um, even Winona LaDuke last week yeah they start so young yeah so Rigoberta and her family united Guatemalans during the war to denounce the government-led mass atro- atrocities their activism though came at a terrible price so during a peaceful protest held at the Spanish embassy in Guatemala in 1980 Rigoberta's father and 37 other campesino activists were murdered. (gasps) They were actually like, they went to have this peaceful protest and they were locked inside the embassy and then the embassy was set on fire. Oh my God. That's horrendous. So a year after her father's death, the Guatemalan army kidnapped and tortured her brother, Patrocino and her mother, Juana. Oh my and God. just, I'm not going to go into detail of what happened, but there was, there was like nothing left. They couldn't even bury them. <gasps> yeah. 
Oh, that's awful. So the military was trying to find information and names of other organizers from her mother and from her brother, and both said nothing. So after their deaths, Rigoberta joined and became increasingly active in what was called the Committee of the Peasant Union, or they nicknamed it the CUC. So the CUC was and still is the first national organization formed by peasants and indigenous people of Guatemala, working to defend the land, water, and food rights of impoverished peasants in Guatemala, primarily in communities facing displacement or environmental damage that's done by like the mining, putting in Mm. dams, um, chopping down trees, things like that. So she began to teach herself Spanish as well as other Mayan languages other than her native uh, Guiche. In 1980, she helped lead a strike with the CUC, petitioning for better conditions for farm workers on the Pacific coast, which she has worked herself. Yeah. And in May of 1981, she was active in the large demonstrations that were happening at the Capitol. So she's rallying. She's out there. She's helping organize these people. And I feel like I have some recollection of that stuff. She joined a radical group called 31st of January Popular Front, which I found was kind of like an odd name. Yeah. What does it refer to? I don't know what the January 31st is in reference to, but I looked up the group and its chief goal was to educate the Indian peasant population to resist massive military oppression. So I feel like a lot of this is... These people don't have the information and they don't have the skills and they don't know how to come together. Mm -hmm. So what you need is you need those people who are the organizers who are helping this educators and, you know, hold hand with this group over here. Yeah. We've seen that happen a lot where like even Lucia Sanchez or Sour Neil had that Mm -hmm. same issue where it was like there were pockets of the same people had the same ideas, but they were all connected. Yeah. That happened in World War Two, too, with the resistors. Like they weren't connected when everybody's. But it's hard to become connected when the people in charge are specifically trying to silence you. Exactly. In 1981, she actually was becoming such an influence with the people of Guatemala that um, her life was in danger. Yep. And so she actually had to flee. Uh, She went into hiding for a little bit and it was still too dangerous. So she ended up going to Chiapas, Mexico. She considered it, you know, she didn't want this to stop. She just said she considered it a new phase in her life. She's like, I'm not going to quit and that she's going to rally and she's going to she's going to bring people who are abroad, bring their attention towards what's happening. And she's going to work from the outside. Mm. So in 1983, she decides to write down and tell her life story to Elizabeth Burgos de Bray. This resulted in a book that she called I Rigoberta. It is a gripping firsthand documentation of the atrocities against the indigenous people of Guatemala. Her book got huge attention because people didn't know that this was happening. And it actually got translated into more than 12 languages and it received several international awards. Wow. The autobiography became one of the most influential accounts of Guatemalans, Guatemala's civil war and it brought the war to global headlines, exposing the cruelties that were being committed and sparking outrage. And how old is she when this book comes out? So this is 1981. She was born in 1959. Okay, so it's only like, she's only like 22 or whatever, mm-hmm. right? She's fairly young, yeah. Wow. Because yeah, her parents, her mother and her brother were murdered when she was 21. Wow. And she left shortly after that. 
So also during this time, she co-founded what was called the United Republic of Guatemalan Opposition. This organization was able to provide aid and assist tens of thousands of people, mostly the indigenous Mayan Indians, to flee from Guatemala and seek refuge. So she was helping these people get out mm. because it was like if they stayed. Yeah, they were going to be they murdered. They were going to be murdered. She did this for years, getting these people out. I mean, tens of thousands of people. In 1992, she was recognized and awarded with a Nobel Peace Prize in recognition of her work for wow. social justice and ethnocultural reconciliation for indigenous people of Guatemala. She was the first indigenous person to receive this prize, and she was the first indigenous woman to receive this prize. Go, go her. <laughs> this is a quote from um, her speech from when she got her Nobel Peace Prize. And I wish I had clips, but she, it, they were not in English. And so I'm just going to read them translated. I would describe the meaning of this Nobel Peace Prize in the first place as a tribute to the Indian people who have been sacrificed and have disappeared because they aimed at more dignified, at a more dignified and just life with fraternity and understanding among human beings. To those who are no longer alive to keep up the hope for a change in the situation in respect of poverty and marginalization of the Indians, of those who have been banished, of the helpless in Guatemala, as well as the entire American continent. Hmm. She's a really good writer. Well, I would imagine so. If she, yeah. <laughs> and how old is she when she wins the Nobel Peace Prize? When she won the Nobel, it was in 1992. So that's like 10 years later. So she's now in like her 30s. 30s. But still, that's really young. That's really young. <laughs> <laughs> so she used this prize money that she got from her Peace Prize to start the Rigoberta Menchutum Foundation. It's an Indian advocacy organization. I did look up the organization and it looks like it ended in 06. Oh, because like I went to the, I tried to find the domain. I tried to find the website, more about the organization. It looks like it stopped and she moved on to uh, something else. So after the Civil War ended, Rigoberta was in the forefront for campaigning to have Guatemalan political and military established member, like military established members tried for the murder of these people. Yeah, like Nuremberg trials. Yes. So this was a little confusing to me. She had to appeal to the Spanish courts. So I know that Spain had an embassy there in Guatemala, and they had some political poll there. But the Guatemalan government was in such disarray that they had to appeal to the, the Spanish courts. I guess. Yeah. But it's still like asking the colonizers to take them, like, do their trial of themselves. Yeah. And I thought that was really strange. And so... It, it actually, in fact, was really strange, and the case was stalled for six years. Oh, of course. Yes. But on December 23, 2006, Spain called for the extradition from Guatemala seven former members of the Guatemalan government, and they charged them with genocide and torture. Good. So Spain's highest court ruled that cases of genocide committed against the Mayan people of Guatemala could be judged in Spain. So I don't know how they were able to do that, though, like yeah. the legality surrounding that. I'm not sure. It is very strange. So Rigoberta, after that was done, she decided to become involved in the indigenous pharmaceutical industry. She was appointed president of the Salud para Todos, which means health for all. Her goal was to bring access to low-cost uh, generic medicines and health care, especially for women. 
Nice. Yeah, I thought that was like, okay, I'm going to just keep making the betterment. When of you my said like, indigenous pharmaceutical or whatever, I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so actually, as president of the organization, she was able to open up, uh, gosh, it said over, over 40, 50 um, pharmacies. Wow. Yeah. And like you could get checkups there and things like that for the people all over Guatemala. She also became one of the founders of the Nobel Women's Initiative. Have you heard of that? Mm -mm. So it's a group of six sister Nobel Peace Laureates, and they represent North America, South America, Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. And the group goal is to bring together their experiences and make a united effort for peace, justice, and equality and helping strengthen women's rights around the world. Wow, that's yeah. really impressive. And it's got a website. It's the Nobel Women's Initiative. I suggest take a peek at it. It was really cool. She actually decided to run for president of Guatemala in 07 and in 2011. Wow. And she was uh, made her the first indigenous-led uh, political party, like completely indigenous people political party. Impressive. And she was unsuccessful, though. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, mean, I don't... I don't her see name, her winning. So. <laughs> but she tried. She ran. She put her name out there. In 2013, the Autonomous National University of Mexico, the UNAM, appointed her as a special investigator within its multicultural nation program. So here is where she can do work, and she's still working to seek justice for all the Mayan people like impacted by the genocide. Mm. Yeah, and she's still she's still doing it. She's still alive. She's like she'll travel. She gives lectures. She was like invited to the UN to speak. Yeah. Well, I would. I mean, after winning the Nobel Peace Prize, it's like the number one award you can get in the world. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. I am really shocked. I don't know who she is. I didn't either. So my uh, information came from there's uh, you know the POV point of view website you've mentioned it before but i don't know it there's a really great uh interview with her where i pulled a lot of information about like when i spoke about her father a lot of that came from there it's part of their archives um, i got some information from grassroots international that website i mentioned before the nobel women's initiative from britannica.com nobelprize.org equalityforher.com and peacejam.org nice uh, we, that's our first Nobel laureate, I think. I think so, too. I don't think we've talked about anybody who's won a Nobel. No. I did see the ratio of like men to oh. women who've won the Nobel. <laughs> it's like 800 and something men and like... 10. Six, it's like 50 women, like 50 or 55. Yeah, that's still incredibly imbalanced. So imbalanced. When you said that it was the Nobel Women's Initiative or whatever, I thought it was going to be... Um, than all of the women who've won a Nobel Peace Prize or a Nobel Prize trying to get more women prizes. <laughs> I was like, I can get behind that. I, I mean, I'll I'm get behind what they actually are doing too, which is probably more noble in the first place. Hence the fact that they're Nobel laureates. Yeah. <laughs> that was really cool. I didn't know anything yeah. about her. Say her full name again. It is Rigoberta Menchu Tum. And the Tum, the T-U-M, she did get married and she does have a son, but I kind of wanted to just more highlight her deeds. Yeah, I'm I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> that was excellent. I'm really glad I know more about her. Yeah. And I also, um, in case we, we haven't mentioned it yet, but November is Indigenous 
um, Heritage Month, Native American Heritage Month. And obviously she's not um, from the U.S. Mm -hmm. But I think that there's a common thread amongst all indigenous cultures, especially in the Americas. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm glad that you highlighted another indigenous person. Me too. I I was at first, uh, I saw her picture. I have to show you her face. I was like, this lady's beautiful. I was like, who is this? <laughs> <laughs> well, that was great. Thank you for sharing. No, you're welcome. And thanks for sharing your story. That was spicy. <laughs> and thank you for listening, everyone. I hope you're enjoying the show. We are obviously looking for always more stories. So if you've got some suggestions, you can always track us down on social media or email us at I don't know her podcast at gmail.com. And we uh, hope that you will like and subscribe and tell your friends. Tell your friends, please. <laughs> and um, we want to thank our editor, Lucas McIntyre. Thank, thank you. you, Lucas. And also to Jennifer Finch of L7 for our wonderful theme music. Alrighty, another one down. Yeah, till next week. Till next time, guys. Goodbye. Goodbye.